So when John and I met to talk about what we were going to do today, I told him, the official bios are usually really boring and most people just tune out because they already know who you are. That's why they came. And so I asked him for some not usual information that I could share with you all to let you get to know John a little bit better. So one of those things is that he met Claire over here, lovely Claire, there um, during Come and See weekend as seniors in high school. So they were both checking out Franciscan University and I guess they saw something that they wanted there. Um, they also, their five children all own stocks um, in the Green Bay Packers. And he says that this is part of Catholic social teaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they have three grandchildren. And they all, they homeschool all of their children through middle school. And I'm sure we can all appreciate that that would have been a very nice time to do homeschooling. Mm-hmm. So those are my random thoughts about John. Whoa, did something just happen? No, okay. Random thoughts about John Grabowski. And now he's gonna tell you about this wonderful book, Catechism for Family Life. Thank you, Sarah. Um, so the reason why the Green Bay Packers are the embodiment of Catholic social teaching, because I know you're wondering, is they are the only community-owned professional sports team in the United States. So therefore, they embody the third way of Catholic social teaching, owned neither by a state nor by a rich individual. Anyway, just, just food for thought. So this book, um, this is a book I never intended to write, um, didn't plan to do it. Um, It wasn't at all on my radar when I was several years back thinking about book projects that I wanted to take on. Um, What happened was about four years ago, two of my colleagues from Catholic University, Andrew Abela and Joe Capizzi, published together a catechism for business. Um, with CUA Press, and the book got a marvelous response, a lot of interest, and it was was basically this format. So it's just a little over 100 questions um, posed, and then the answers are excerpts from Catholic social teaching, from magisterial documents that speak to those questions um, with varying degrees of directness, varying degrees of authority. Um, That book it, it, it really seemed to strike a chord because a lot of people who are struggling, how do I be a Catholic in the marketplace? How do I be a Catholic in business, in, in public life? Found it to be a wonderful resource. And CUA Press was very excited about the response um, to it. So I guess in one of their meetings, they started kicking around the ideas, well, what, what else could we do this with? And they said, well, marriage and family. Uh, so they approached me and said, would you consider doing a book like this, preferably w- with another person, preferably um, a woman, um, a lay woman, maybe one of your former students? And I said, well, it's got to be Sarah Bartell. It's because Sarah um, got her doctorate with us about, about nine or ten years ago. Um, did a wonderful dissertation on spiritual childhood and the thought of St. Therese of Lisieux as the basis for an understanding of family as domestic church. Um, Sarah and her family live on the West Coast 
she's in the Archdiocese of Seattle. Um, she is a homeschooling mom, a Catholic blogger, and a marriage and family life consultant for the Archdiocese of Seattle. So just a wealth of practical experience, but also one uh, really good academic training, wonderful person to work with. So I, I, I immediately said, it's got to be Sarah. So I called her and said, would you like to team up on this project? And she said she would love to. So that's what kind of um, launched it, I guess. Um, so Sarah and I started to um, converse. How do we go about this? Well, the first thing we had to do was come up with a list of questions, right? And the book is structured in 110 questions covering different areas, um, Catholic, kind of the cultural context of family, um, questions about dating, uh, questions about courtship, marriage, the actual wedding, uh, celebration, um, uh, family planning, the church's teaching on family planning, on openness to life, um, parenthood, raising children, some of the challenges you face as parents, hard questions that come up in family life, um, and then the family's mission as a domestic church, um, it, the family's social mission outside the walls of its home, out in the neighborhood community. So a lot of different, a lot of ground to cover. So we had to come up with a list of questions. So we started just batting these back and forth. And um, we drew on our own experience as married people, as parents, but also as Catholic educators in different contexts. I will say that um, serving at the Synod Another thing I never planned to do, by the way, um, I tell my students the story. One day in summer of 2015, I went down to our campus after having planned my courses out for the fall, um, and in my mailbox was this big, bulky white envelope from the Holy See. And when I pulled it out, there was a letter on the top of it from Cardinal Lorenzo Baldessari, the secretary of the Synod of Bishops. And it said, you have been appointed as an auditor or expert for the upcoming 2015 Synod of Bishops. And the, cardinal, the last line of the Cardinal's opening paragraph was, the Holy Father thanks you for accepting this invitation. <laughs> so my first reaction was, I thought it was a different group from Italy that made offers that couldn't be refused. <laughs> Not the right reaction, right? My second thought was, what am I going to do with my classes for three weeks? My third thought was, I guess I'm going to Rome. And that was, that was finally the right thought. But what I did was, at the Synod, um, it, I found out that one of the really interesting things about serving at the Synod was, in the General Assembly sessions, everyone who was there, all of the bishops, all of the auditors, the observers, generally lay witness couples, and the fraternal delegates from other churches, they all got to make an intervention if they wanted to. Some of them got to double dip and make two because there were a few free periods sprinkled in. The experts didn't get to talk in the General Assembly. I said to one of the other English-speaking experts, we're like the children of the Synod. They want us to be seen and not heard. <laughs> Our job was to be scribes. So during the General Assembly sessions, we were supposed to listen to every intervention that was made and write it down, and then meld it together and give it to the small groups. Um, in the small groups, we could talk. <laughs> um, so some of us tried to make up for some, it's really hard to be an academic and not be able to talk. Um, 
so tried to make up for a little lost time, I guess. But even there, we had to write. Because if you said something in a small group and a bishop liked it, he would turn to you and say, write that down. And then if he said something he liked, he would turn to you and say, write that down. So before I went to the synod, I had dinner with a group of Dominicans. And one of the older ones said, you're going to the synod. You are going to write, 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 write. And he was right. That's what I did for three weeks. I wrote. But I used the opportunity of being a scribe. A lot, some of the questions are directly out of the synod and the discussions in the general assembly sessions and the small groups. These are the, some of the things that we were wrestling with, debating, deliberating about. Um, so once Sarah and I had come up with our list, we passed it around to some other people who added some additional questions. Um, based on their own experience of family life, of ministry, of other things. Once we had our list, then we started, I, well, then it was where do, we, where do we start looking for answers? For me, it helped that I'd been teaching marriage and family for a long time. So a lot of these documents, I, I knew. I, I had a sense of where to look in scripture and where to look in the catechism and where to look in the writings of St. Paul VI and St. John Paul II. Um, little, little less sure finding my way around the corpus of, of Pope Benedict. I'm not, a, I'm not a Benedict scholar by any means, but I mean, I knew some things that, I, that were there. Uh, and Pope Francis, we're all kind of learning as we go um, with, with, with Pope Francis. But so some of it, I had a sense of where to look. Some of it, it was, we had to do some digging, some research. Um, but that was kind of the fun part, too, um, trying to find texts that really speak to some of these questions and recognizing that they don't always speak directly, but at least giving people principles that they can use to form their conscience, to discern. Um, so I did, I think I did the first pass at these questions, and then I lobbed it back to Sarah. So it was kind of like a, game, a bi-coastal uh, volleyball match. Um, you know, it, I would put the ball over the net, and then a, a month or two later, suddenly it would come back from Sarah with all of her additions. Boy, did we get a lot of mileage out of track changes, because we, we would always track changes to see what we had added or subtracted or changed. Um, but in some cases, we did some division of labor. Um, so the, the, the research we both did together, it was really, it, again, it was a really wonderful experience of collaboration working with her. Um, but Sarah wrote most of the introduction. She did the, the, certainly the first draft and most of the revision of the introduction. I did the list of resources at the end because, again, teaching for all those years, I had a sense of what was out there and where to look. Um, I probably did the majority of the editor's notes little explanations of, of things in documents or technical terms. But again, it, it, was, a, it was a really, um, it was a, I've, over the years I've had the chance to collaborate with different people on academic projects. Um, and the experiences I've had with former uh, friends from graduate school, with former students, They've all been very positive, so it, it really is a, it's a blessing to be able to work with someone else. My latest thing is my wife and I have been collaborating on books, but um, that's not this book, so that's a different conversation. Um, 
who's the audience for the book? We, I think the primary audience, probably religious educators, family life ministers, pastors, um, probably ambitious families or married couples. Al Cresta gave us a beautiful endorsement. He said this should be in the home of every Catholic family. Thanks, Al. We're not even paying him um, to say things like that. Um, my colleague, David Cloutier, who's here, asked me today, so are you going to use this in your undergraduate marriage class? And I said, huh, I never even thought of that. Um, I, I know, right? I, <laughs> duh, right? But, and the more I think about it, the more I think it, maybe it could work in a setting like that one, too, because one of the things I notice about teaching undergraduates, and I hope I don't offend anyone who might be of college age or re re recent uh, uh, recently thereof, some, some people who study education now speak of a generation text, how people who have grown up with technology, with uh, texting, with social media, they're used to getting information in very short little bursts. So it's hard to give a long scholarly narrative to a group of undergraduates and get them to, to read it even if you torture them with things like reading quizzes to try to get them to be account. Whereas a format like this, where it's just kind of simple direct questions and then just excerpts from magisterial documents that speak directly to those, this is a way to get church documents and primary source material into the hands of a group like that and maybe in a format that's more digestible for them than your typical uh, textbook might be. So maybe that's an audience I overlooked when I was when I was thinking about this. Um, how could you? How can people use a book like this? Sarah has a nice discussion of this actually in the introduction. But I mean, you could certainly read through the whole of it, um, just because it gives you a sense of just the scope of the church's um, teaching and vision on family and some of the wisdom um, in the church's tradition and how it can shed light on questions we wrestle with. Um, in our daily life. Did, should I get my kid a smartphone? Why? When? Um, should, what about television? Should we have a television in our house? I mean, there are things that the church and the church's pastors have said that speak to that, that do they solve the question? No, but do they give parents, couples, religious educators food for thought and food for prayer? Yes. So you can read through this and you get a sense of the scope of the church's teaching, or you could use it as a reference for specific questions. You're wrestling with a question. Um, do, do I go to, uh, this close family friend is getting married outside of the church. You know, they're both baptized Catholics. Do I go? Because in the eyes of the church, that's not a wedding. That's not a valid wedding at all. Do I go to support them or do I not go? So, I mean, that's a difficult question. That's going to take a prudential judgment of conscience. But what principles can I draw on from the church's teaching that can help me make a well-formed judgment of conscience on a difficult question like that? Um, so a lot of the questions that we pose don't get answered directly. Um, some do. Some, some of the te uh, texts from John Paul II, from Francis, from Benedict, from Pope Paul VI, answer the questions head on, very directly. Some don't, some, but some of them, they still provide principles and aids for discernment. 
Um, the last thing I, I guess I would say something about is doing a book like this makes you realize that you're only scratching the surface, right? There's so many other, there's other questions we could have included here, but in some cases probably wouldn't have been prudent to do so. Um, questions like, well, what about people who have intersex conditions whose expression of sexual difference is ambiguous? What does the church say about them? Or people who experience gender dysphoria, a disconnect between their sense of self and their physical embodiment and expression of sex difference. What does the church say? Well, in point of fact, the church doesn't say much of anything about either of those things, those conditions directly because we're just learning about them scientifically. And so the church is kind of listening and learning and trying to, do we have principles in terms of the dignity of every human person, the value of every, of course we do, of course we do. But questions like that, maybe it's not the time um, yet to tackle questions like that. And the church, both the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the USCCB are kind of, they're kind of, pardon the expression, keeping their powder dry on those questions, and I think there's wisdom in that. Um, but there are lots of other kinds of questions, bioethical questions, at the beginning of life and at the end of life. People who are sandwich parents, taking care of small children and caring for elderly parents and trying to manage their elderly parents' care. Um, there's a whole host of questions there. So I think the next conversation I have with the good people at COA Press, John Martino and others who are the um, who was a wonderful support behind this project, I think I'm going to suggest to them maybe the next catechism that COA Press does would be a catechism on bioethics because I think there's a lot of issues and a lot of questions there. And we have just the colleague at COA who might, who might be able to tackle that project if he has the time. But anyway, I think I'll stop there and let Sarah start grilling me with some questions. <laughs> I guess you can have a little water. Thank you. All right, we're just gonna start with the elephant in the room, at least the elephant in the room in my sense, which is why should we listen to what certain people have to say in the church about marriage, sex, parenting, and love when we've just found out that we can't trust them to keep children or adults safe? That's, that's a great question and that is the question that addresses the elephant in the room so I've been thinking since Sarah and I full disclosure um, we actually uh, we had we had a, a meeting at Starbucks last week to, to talk about some possible questions so she was very gracious and let me know a question like this was was on the way and a, a couple of thoughts um, that th things that I've thought of uh, in, in in thinking about this and I don't, and I, none of this is, is meant to be flippant, but truth is truth, right? No matter who is the messenger of that truth. And we have lots of examples in scripture of God using unexpected messengers to deliver truth and very imperfect messengers. In the Old Testament, the prophet Balaam is kept from cursing the people of Israel by God intervening through his donkey. In the New Testament, in John's Gospel, we're told that uh, the high priest who, plotting the death of Jesus, says it's better that one man die than that f 
then the whole nation be destroyed. One man die for the sake of the nation. And the author of the gospel says this is the high priest prophesying how Jesus was going to die for the nation. And of course, it's incredible irony because it's complete human calculation. Let's kill an innocent man out of political expedience. Um, so God can use anyone and anything. Look at the apostles themselves in the scripture whom our bishops are the successors of. The apostles who don't get it when Jesus works a miracle or tells a parable or don't understand, who are so slow to understand, who are so slow to, so those apostles, yes, those apostles, right? The, our bishops are the, so our bishops are human and we have, you know, we look at church history and we see so many examples of wonderful saints, but also sinners um, who are in leadership positions in the church, bishops, popes, who are notorious sin. This is not, this isn't new, right? So the church is made up of, the, made up of sinners, but the church is still entrusted with divine revelation, um, and the bishops are servants of that revelation in passing it on to us. So in virtue of their office, they communicate the truth, and God uses them with their imperfections. The, the last thought I had was to make it maybe closer to home. Um, as a parent, right, I, we now have five adult kids, three grandkids, but one of the things you contend with as a parent is you tell your children, this is how you ought to live, this is what you ought to do, and you know that you are a sinner yourself, and your kids see it because you lose your temper, you, you, you yell at them, you, and then you have to go back to your child and ask his or her forgiveness, right? So this is part and parcel of the Christian life. All of us struggle with our, I, I teach moral theology. Um, I tell my students, and it's only a little bit tongue in cheek, I can do that because those who can't do teach. I can write books that have virtue in the title. It doesn't mean I'm virtuous, <laughs> right? It, it means I can tell you a lot about virtue theory, um, but living it out, that's a, that's a whole other thing. You don't, so for all of those reasons, I think we shouldn't discount the wisdom that the church offers us in spite of the feet of clay of her shepherds and pastors, which we are getting uh, painfully reacquainted with in the current scandal. Okay. So can you tell us what you think are some of the top challenges that are facing families today? Mm. That's a great, another great question. I think we, um, families in our culture today and Claire and I have done marriage preparation together for 25 years of, of couples. Um, and one of the things we tell couples whom we work with and prepare is, compared to a couple of, even a couple, just a couple generations ago, you don't, you're not gonna have some of the same supports that your parents and that your grandparents had. Because when they got married, typically, People lived within close range walking distance, in many cases, of their families, of their extended families. So they had a support system, a network around them. We're in a much more mobile society. Most Catholic parishes 
were communities where people were involved in each other's life, which helped take care of each other's kids, helped when someone got sick in a family, other families would step in and help. In some cases now, some of our parishes, big urban and suburban parishes, are sacramental service stations where people drive in for a Sunday morning fill-up of grace and drive out again, and they don't know the people sitting around them in the liturgy, right? So families have to be a lot more intentional in seeking out support from other Catholic couples, other Catholic families, seeking parishes where they are their vocation is affirmed, they're challenged, and they're enabled to live out their vocation as spouses and parents. It's, it doesn't just happen. Um, we also have the problem of, of a real problem of catechesis in that at the same time that the sexual revolution, another major challenge, ex kind of went on uh, steroids with the advent of oral contraception in the 1960s and 70s, the church, because of its own internal disagreement over oral contraception, kind of effectively lost its voice and stopped catechizing people, which is a, a case of incredibly bad timing. So a lot of people who grew up in the 60s and 70s were formed much more by the culture than by the church. And, and now we have more, res I mean, we have St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, which is a wonderful resource. but. There's still that catechetical void in some people's lives. So those are some of the challenges. I think um, Mary Eberstadt, who's going to be here next week, can probably speak even more fully to this question because um, I know this is not the book she's going to be talking about, but her book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, the best diagnosis of what the sexual revolution has done to American uh, culture and American Catholicism that I've seen. Could we go back to what you said in the first part of that about the support system and talk mm -hmm. a little bit more about how um, support systems are made of the people who are there. And so unless you are also willing to help, <laughs> you're not going to get support when you need help. So I've noticed we have um, a pretty great support system in, in St. Jerome's Parish in Hyattsville, Maryland. Mm. But I have noticed perhaps among the younger set, no comment, um, that there's a lot of asking for help and not a ton of giving mm. it. And, there, and I feel like we need to somehow educate into the world of like, and now you cook for her, <laughs> or like, and now you, you know. Right. How do you do that graciously? It's a, it's a great question. I think it, in some ways it's another formation issue, right? How do you, help form people to understand that d discipleship really is a two-way street. It's not just asking for help, it's not just asking for support, but it's how can I serve? How can I give back? Um, Claire and I tell couples who we work with when we're preparing couples for marriage, one of the reasons why we do that is it actually helps our own marriage a lot. Doing ministry as a couple is a wonderful thing for your marriage. Doing ministry as a family is a wonderful thing for a family because the family benefits by giving. You can't outgive God. So the more you give, the more you reach out as a couple, as a family, as a domestic church, the more your family's enriched, the stronger it becomes. So you're, you're absolutely right, sir. It's got to be a two-way street. Um, 
it can't just be, it's not all about what, what can we get out of the equation. So one of the things that I noticed in the book is that the questions vary um, widely. Mm -hmm. So some of them would only be written by somebody who's already on board. So for example, a question about pornography is basically like, it's number 77. Um, Let's see. I'm working on a podcast on pornography. That's why. Mm. Okay. Um, how do we teach our children that pornography is a poison for their minds, hearts, and relationships? And I read that and I was like, wow, that's presuming. We're presuming people are on the same page as us about the poison. I mean, I hope y'all are on the same page, but you might not be. Um, whereas some of them are like, you know, I'm, be I'm dating somebody and we want to live together. And I'm like, how are these two the same? So yeah. can you address that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of it um, reflects that the questions were composed and drawn from a lot of different people in a lot of different contexts. Um, and so people were just kind of, how can I pose this in a way that's going to get people's attention? But it also, I think, reflects the fact that the book is intended to be used by people who are at different places in regard to the faith and in regard to the church. That, I mean, hopefully someone who is just maybe thinking about the Catholic faith, not necessarily from the inside, could pick this up and say, well, what do Catholics think about this? And find a question that speaks to it and, you know, uh, so that that more outsider perspective might resonate much better for a person like that. Whereas some, you know, in other cases, if it is a Catholic family life minister or a Catholic pastor of a parish or a Catholic couple who are looking for specific guidance on a question, you know, they're, they're hopefully on board, uh, as you put it, uh, you know, to some degree, to hopefully to a, to a large degree. And so they're gonna, so the, the different person or voices that you hear in the questions are kind of, um, I guess, a reflection of what we hope is the audience of the book, that it could work for people and be a resource for people who are wrestling with questions from the ins inside of the faith or looking at it more from an outsider perspective. Um, but as to why pornography is a poison, um, there was a study done by a group of trial lawyers about seven years ago that said 58% of the cases of divorce that they handle involve one or both parties having an addiction to some form of pornography. Pornography is the leading destroyer of marriages in our country today. So, at least from where I sit, that sounds like a poison. It's pretty bad. <laughs> so, what if the people, what if people here today are thinking, this is great, I love marriage and family life, this is great, um, but I can't get a date. So what, what do you have to say to those of us who are in that situation? Okay. Um, Claire, well, uh, this is, I'm going to go off road. I'm hearing some, I'm hearing some amen. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go great. off road a little bit here. Um, but I mean, I will say that uh, Claire and I have dealt with this with some of our own kids and with friends of our adult kids. So this, the, your question rings very true. Um, we just finished another book um, on raising children for their future vocations. And one of the things that really came home to me in, res in writing that book together was it, when you understand the church's teaching, 
Claire and I have given, given talks at groups with a lot of young people in them, and we've had young people from really Catholic universities come up to us and say, you know, we've been taught that we don't have a vocation hmm. until we get married or until we enter religious life or the priesthood. We have no vocation. And I said, that's not the church's understanding as far as I understand it, because all of us have a baptismal vocation. Um, vo our word vocation comes from the Latin vocare, it means to call. We are called to holiness in virtue of our baptism. That's our primary vocation as Christians, right? To be a disciple, to grow in holiness. When we enter, if we enter into a specific state in life, like marriage or religious life or consecrated life or priesthood or something, that call gets redescribed, but it doesn't go away. That's still our basic vocation, our basic call. So I think the first thing people who are in that situation need to recognize is I'm not waiting for my Christian vocation to start. I have one. And now, my, right now, I'm called to live it out as an adult single Christian. Um, and when that person really believes that, yes, I think God wants me to get married, but doesn't see any one on the horizon who fits the that's hard. Um, the, the thing we've told our own children when they've wrestled with this, friend, friends of our family, you know, don't settle. Don't settle. If, if, if you believe this is what God wants for you, then he's going to show you the right individual or not that there's a one soulmate out there for people uh, th that's a myth it's a actually a dangerous cultural myth right because then people when they uh, get if they get married and they start to go through some struggle and suffering which every marriage has they're this isn't my soulmate I need to keep looking that's that's ridiculous but there is something to be said I want someone who I can really share my life, my ideals with, someone who's going to help me get to heaven, someone whom I can help get to heaven, um, someone who we can have a mission together as being part of a domestic church. We had a dear friend of ours who just got married about three years ago at the age of 54, 55. She had never been married before. She always believed that God wanted her to get married, and she finally met someone who she thought was the right, the right kind of person. He had been married before. He had a couple of uh, children from a previous marriage. So now she's married and she's a mom. And she, you know, so God has a plan. So hang in there. <laughs> if anyone else is resonating with Sarah's question. Well, I, also, I like how you caught yourself in the middle there. You said, when, I mean, if they get married. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that we have to work on as a church, as a culture, um, the, the if rather right. than the when. Right. Um, because at least for girls, I think, especially, I'm not sure if that's true, but um, we grow up thinking the when. Mm -hmm. When, when, when. Mm -hmm. And so when you're like getting older and older and it's not happening and you're like, wait, but I thought, oh wait, God didn't promise that to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, that's, mm -hmm. and that's like a whole journey that actually, I was just with a bunch of Christian women mm -hmm. dealing with the same exact thing. Right. Um, so it's just something that I think we could work on. Um, anyway. And, and I think 
just reminding people that you have a vocation, right? right? right. As a single Christian person. So it's not right. that you're in limbo or on hold. Right. Um, and that you can't live a full Christian life. So we haven't thought enough about um, people who live all or significant parts of their lives as single adult Christians, either before marriage or if their spouse dies and someone lives for a long period of time without remarriage. So we need to, we need to do more to think about that as a church. How do we live our vocation to holiness as single persons? You could write a book about it. And maybe it could be a catechism. <laughs> catechism I'm gonna... for single, single life. Ooh, there we go. Um, I'm going to ask a bunch of Catholic Twitter questions. That's what I'm calling Yay. them. Yay. So either, um, is anybody on Catholic Twitter? Nobody? Yay. A couple of you. Okay, great. Well, I mean, it could just mean somebody who's Catholic who is on Twitter. Yeah. You know, it's like a whole world, the Catholic Twitter world. I mean, it is. Um, so Twitter... But it's like the Catholic people on Twitter who all fight with, among each other. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so it's not a separate social media platform named Catholic Twitter. No, no, no. Okay, good. No, it's just Twitter. For but us all Luddites, the Catholic people are fighting. That's a helpful clarification. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the questions that comes up in Catholic Twitter is should children ever be taken out of Mass on Sundays? Great question. <laughs> if uh, Sarah and I had uh, included this question in our catechism, oh. Um, I think actually there's a magisterial document that speaks directly to it. No, I mean like it. if they're screaming, should right. they ever So be you have a out? child who's having a meltdown in mass. Should that child be taken out or left to melt down because they're in the Lord's presence? Um, so the Second Vatican Council's uh, Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, uh, says the, the, one of the goals of the renewal and reform of the liturgy is the full and conscious participation of everyone in the liturgical celebration. So if a child is having a meltdown, the child is not engaged in full and conscious participation, and the child is preventing those around her or him from engaging in the same full and conscious participation. So of course you can take your child out. Claire and I dealt with this with our own kids. One of the things we found is when they were very little, at first, being taken out was kind of a reward. It's like, now I don't have to sit in mass and be still. And this is, this, I can run around in the, in the crying room or the vestibule and this is fun. And then we're like, okay, that's not the message we want to send. So then we had to communicate to our children, if you get taken out of mass, it's because you're in trouble. And the message got received over time, and the kids learned that, you know, uh, and we also adjusted our own practice, so we did things like, let's sit up front as a family so the kids can see what's going on, and we can point out to them what's going on in the liturgy, and so it, it, wor- it, it was a process we went through, but it worked, but I mean, so if the goal is that kind of participation, then we have to think about that, not just for ourselves or our children, but for all of the members of the liturgical assembly. Nice. How about boundaries with technology? Hmm. Boy, that that could. I mean, we have a couple of questions in here, but that could. We those could easily be expanded. So, um, t- I mean, technology is wonderful, right? But um, I mean, and Pope Francis, I think, because he's the pope. Um, 
who has had the most um, interface with um, technology as we have it now. Pope Francis has some really nice direct things to say about, um, you know, it's when you have a family and the family is all in the same space and everyone is on their own device and no one's interact. and we have memes like this, right? There are commercials and memes where the family, everyone's sitting around the table and they're all on their own smartphone or tablet or whatever. Pope Francis is, he says, basically, that's not a family, that's a boarding house. No one is interacting with anyone else, right? So technology can make the world smaller, it can enable us to communicate with people on the other side of the world, but people living under the same roof, technology can, um, technology can drive us apart, it can isolate us in some very, very um, disturbing, and that's really true in a family. So parents really have to exercise prudence when do we get our, you know, when do you get your kids, what's a, what technology is appropriate for what age? And we, you know, we, as parents, we pushed hard. Our kids didn't get smart, uh, didn't get cell phones until they started driving. Um, you know, just, and then once they had the phones, then the, the, the issue is prying them out of their hands. So we had a rule, no technology at the dinner table, right? Because dinner is a time when you interact as a family. So. You know, and then the kids would try to surreptitiously yeah. have the phone <laughs> totally. and text under the table. It's like, come on, I'm sitting right next to you. You think I can't see that? So learning to set boundaries, I mean, it's, some, it's, it's crucial if we're going to protect a family's ability to form our own children and to be what St. John Paul II called a sanctuary of life, where we're, we're welcoming not just and fostering not just human life, but divine life by catechizing our children, by sharing the faith around the dinner table. Uh, technology doesn't help that for the most part. So uh, when it comes to technology in a family, I think less is more. Okay, There's I think your it's, it's your term now. So Angelica has, um, has a microphone. So if you have a question, just raise your little hands. Yep, and I'll come to you. Uh, anyone with a question? Hi, yes, uh, thanks for the, the talk. Um, I'd like to ask you about a scenario. I'm not sure if it's addressed in your book or not, but um, imagine a, a, a married couple, um, you know, not practicing Catholics that cohabited um, and slept together before they were married, um, got married, and by their own account and everyone else's accounts that, that knows them, seem to be very happily married, um, don't view, don't think that their cohabitation before getting married was an impediment, in fact, testify to it as a benefit. Mm. So I guess when, when you're confronting that type of a situation, um, both when the message that you would try and send to that couple about um, maybe the culpability mm. of, of their situation prior to their marriage, mm -hmm. but also to the people who are witnesses to that and are, find it convincing and compelling, mm. who are on the fence, mm -hmm. um, I haven't found, I haven't heard like some really compelling messages to either of those people. What I've tended to hear is statistics like, you know, people who cohabit together have a probability of not working out. And I find that those just aren't as convincing to people. So I was wondering if you've had, if you've seen other approaches that have been effective to both of those, those groups. Hmm. Um, so in your scenario, is the couple now, are they now practicing Catholics? Uh, not necessarily, no. Okay. I mean, for me, the first thing, I mean, 
in, in, a, in a case like case like this. So Pope Francis invites us as a church. He says in um, his encyclical, the, or not encyclical, his exhortation, the joy of the gospel, Evangelii Gaudium. We need a missionary conversion. So when we approach a couple like that, the first thing I think we need to think about is how can I invite this couple to an encounter with Christ, right? How can I share my own experience of that encounter and its life-changing effect on me? Because otherwise, whatever I say to them, you know, I can cite statistics. Couples who cohabit before marriage are 46% more likely to divorce than couples who don't. That's what the studies show. That may not be compelling. And they may say, yeah, but that's not us. We're in the other 54%. So, um, but if I'm inviting them to encounter Christ, then maybe they start to rethink their earlier situation. Um, and if they're open to that kind of encounter with Christ, then the next thing I think about is how can I invite them to then have their marriage properly sacramentally witnessed in the church so that they, because in the eyes of the church, that couple, if they're married outside the church, that's not a marriage at all if they're both baptized Christians, right? So it's, they're, they're living, that's not even a natural marriage. And I mean, my experience of 33 years of marriage is we need all the grace we can get in a marriage because marriage is hard. Marriage is work. There are times of real suffering and difficulty when you run out of your own resources. And that couple may be happy now, but they're going to they're going to have times of struggle. I mean, that's a normal part of every human relationship, the seven-year itch. Most one of the most common times for divorce, one of the most common times for people to leave a job, a religious community. Um, it hits couples who are living together in or outside of marriage as well. So what do they do? What, where do they draw their, their resources to confront the challenge and the struggle? So, I mean, I, I think the first thing in a case like that is to invite them to more. You have, a, you have a good relationship. It can be so much better when this relationship is actually drawing on the grace that's available to you in the sacrament of marriage. And then we can talk about issues of culpability um, I, I do find the statistics are enough to at least give some people pause, and especially if you dig into the statistics and say, well, why, why, why is early cohabitation a predictor of later marital failure? Well, one reason that social scientists point to is couples get habituated to avoid conflict, right? So, because if we have a, if we have a fight, well, she might move out or he might move out. So we just don't have a fight. We get, we, so couples become trained to never have a conflict. But conflict is how a good marriage grows. Working through conflict in non-destructive ways are how couples keep learning about each other over time. And that's how the relationship grows and deepens. So again, my approach would be say, I'm glad you have a good relationship, but there's so much more that you could have in your relationship. Great question. Terrific question. Funny story about the seven-year itch. Can I tell yeah, you? Go for it. So I have some friends who are, you know, very pious, wonderful, happy, happily married people. And I was over at the apartment, and I said, oh, how long have you guys been married again? And she was like, oh, it's going to be seven years next week. And I go, oh, seven years. Uh-oh. And she was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and so I said, well, seven years. And I explained the seven-year itch thing. 
And I happened to go back like six months later, and she was like, Sarah, I have to yell at you for your um, comment because now we're in counseling. <laughs> she was like, it just happened. Like, we just realized we needed more help. So, so it's a real thing. But anyway. might have happened without your comment. I know. That wasn't you, Oh, Sarah. no, it wasn't me. I'm not taking responsibility for that. <laughs> Hi. I disagree, sir. I think you have full responsibility. Oh, man. Wow. I don't even know you. <laughs> so, Future uh, friend. Yeah. I, um, I, I have a, kind of a, just a quick question with regards to actually divorce. And I think everyone kind of naturally understands that there's something unnatural about divorce. And when you grow up in America today and you realize, wow, like half of my friends, their parents are divorced. It's really problematic, um, and it, it causes a lot of damage. And I guess my question is, how, how do you answer the truth about marriage in a permanent sense, kind of in the context of the last question? And it, to me, the, the answer to the last question about kind of inviting them to encounter with Christ, it just feels a little bit light, especially when you consider a place like Germany, where there's a lot of serious questions right now about divorce going on in the church, mm-hmm. and I, I, I don't think there's been a whole lot of clarity on it, and it seems like inviting people to encounter with Christ is important, and we should always be doing that, right. but an encounter with love also is an encounter with truth, mm-hmm. So, and there's a truth about marriage, and divorce is not part of it, so just interested in your thoughts on that. Thanks. Um, great question. Um, and well, well framed. Um, I think it's important that both Pope Francis and John Paul II describe the, in, in, the indissolubility of marriage, um, which you're right, even natural marriage, St. Augustine says, even natural marriage is indissoluble, even a, just a human marriage. By the creator's design, marriage is designed to be indissoluble. That's why the permission to divorce in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 24, Jesus in the Gospel says that was because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But in the beginning, it wasn't so. Um, so divorce is contrary to the Creator's plan for marriage. D- marriage is naturally indissoluble, but Christian marriage St. Augustine would say, is especially indissoluble because it is an image and a participation in the union between Christ and the church. But the reason why it's indissoluble is because the grace of that union, the union between Christ and the church, is the grace that is available within Christian marriage, which is why both John Paul II and Francis say the indissolubility of marriage is not a legal requirement, it's a gift of grace. This is what the Holy Spirit enables. This is what the sacrament confers. The bond of marriage creates an indissoluble union between this couple. Now, both canon law and Pope Francis acknowledge that in some horrible situations like abuse, divorce might be a necessary step to protect oneself or to protect one's children. But in the church's understanding, civil divorce does nothing to the bond of marriage. That bond is presumed to continue to exist unless the couple receives a decree of nullity that says 
no, there was never a valid sacramental marriage in the first place. In that case, they're free to enter into another union. So the church's teaching is couples who divorce and remarry civilly, those individuals are excluded from the sacraments except in four cases. If their first spouse dies, if they receive a decree of nullity from the church, an annulment, um, if one of them is in danger of death, or if they agree to live as brother and sister in their second union, but they stay together, for example, for the sake of the children. That's Familiars Consortio 84, that's Sacramentum Caritatis 29, right? And there's nothing I can find in Amoris Laetitia 8 that reverses that teaching in a blanket fashion. And unfortunately, I think that's how that text is being read in places like Germany. Um, I think maybe in one specific case, the so-called conflict case, where a couple believes in conscience that their first marriage was not valid, but for lack of evidence or lack of witnesses or because of tribunal malfeasance, they cannot make that case to a tribunal and receive an annulment. I think in that case, Amoris Laetitia 8 might open the door to sacramental participation on the part of a couple in that specific situation but I think that's as far as it goes. There's no blanket permission, and there's no general changes in the church's discipline or canon law. And Pope Francis says that explicitly. Uh, thank you uh, very much, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor, for the answer that you just gave. Uh, just one other thing, you, you mentioned four cases. Um, would you add a fifth, uh, the Pauline privilege? Um, me, meaning that mean, meaning uh, meaning that a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever yes 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 that, that yes that um, that after the you know appropriate you know paperwork has been filed with the di with the diocese and the bishop uh, approves then if the um, if the person who who was who was uh, an I don't know. I don't know if this if this applies only to 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 Jews, but also to other unbelievers. Probably other unbelievers as well. But if the person who was an unbeliever married to another unbeliever and is now civilly married to a believer and is now a believer himself or her, herself, as I as I understand it, with this individual's Entrance into into the church, and then the um, convalidation of the marriage. The first marriage is immediately dissolved. I, I'm probably not using the right uh, canon law terms, but right. it's something like like that, is my understanding. No, I know because this just w took place with the, with the family member. Okay. I, I think in what you just described, Don, there's a. You're, you're talking about both the Pauline and Petrine privileges together. Yes. Petrine privilege, um, someone entering the faith, the previous marriage is dissolved in favor of fide, in favor of the entry into the... Yes. The Pauline privilege is the case where you have a natural marriage between a baptized and an unbaptized oh, right. person. Oh, right, right. Okay, yes. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, mm -hmm. 12 through 16 says, if the unbeliever can't live in peace, then let them go. Mm -hmm. um, my understanding is both of those um, exceptions, if you will, both the Petrine and Pauline mm -hmm. 
privileges which canon law describes are forms of the annulment procedure. Okay. So they, okay. I would include them in the four exceptions that I mentioned. They're just very specific cases. And in the case of the Pauline privilege, it, you're actually dealing with a natural marriage, not a sacramental marriage. Right, right, okay. Um, and the Petrine as well, but okay. in different circumstances, so. I see, thank you very much. Thank you, great question. Thank you, and thank you Dr. Grabowski and Sarah Perla. Audience, please just give them a round of applause. Thank you, Sarah.